take your Bible and turn to Romans 13. You had your uh, opportunity a little while ago to not have me deliver this message, but I was affirmed also, so (laughs) you have to sit here for a while, and you're going to be here a while, but it's okay. You'll be all right. Romans 13, uh, verse 1, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which are established, those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they will have an they uh, who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for your good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Now we are carefully and slowly uh, working our way through this text, and you go, I, I know, but, but we're doing it. I, I understand. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're drawing principles out of this text of Scripture to help us understand as believers how we relate to government. And again, we've seen in our study so far that all authority comes from God. There's no higher authority than Him, and He is the ultimate power. Therefore, all authority belongs to Him. And since all authority belongs to Him, every earthly ruler has a delegated authority from God. Again, verses 1 and 2, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. Those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinances of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Because because most believers genuinely want to do the right thing. Most believers want to submit themselves to the authority over them. And I think believers want to do the right thing. They want to submit to the authority over them. And again, for the most part, most Christians, especially in this country, just for for, for many years have just taken the position, obey the government at all times unless they command you to sin. And as we've seen in our study, that, that that view of government is woefully inadequate and not really a biblical understanding of authority. Because all human government believes they are all due our absolute obedience. All human government, all the state, believes that they are owed our absolute obedience in everything they do. Because at least in, in their own mind, everything they do is for our own what? Good. It's for our good. Right? And they would never do anything to command us to sin. Right? So obey the government at all times unless they command you to sin. It's just an improper, not deeply thought through position. So again, because of that, most Christians don't have a proper understanding of biblical authority as, again, a delegated authority. And we, therefore, grant far too much power to human government than biblically belongs to them. Now, human government or the state is more than glad to take that authority and more glad to take that power because they believe it belongs to them in the first place. Again, the state sees itself as the supreme authority over and above every earthly sphere of authority, over and above individual, over and above the home, and most certainly over and above the church. Therefore, the state or civil government authorities attempts to seek and establish total authority over society even in a democratic republic such as ours, and at the, at the least it's called totalitarianism and probably closer towards tyranny is where it's working to. Right? A totalitarian view of government says the state seeks or the state has total control over and above every other sphere of authority. 
Now, again, much of the, the, the modern church, I think, has sadly failed to think deeply on the issue. Therefore, it plays right into the hands of the state that is, again, trying to establish authority over society. And the church of Jesus Christ essentially begins to look to the state for everything, including the church of Jesus Christ tends to look to the state for permission just to be the church. And the ultimate goal of the state from the secular humanistic side is to usher in what they would consider, quote-unquote, the state of utopia, right? A state, a state of utopian government, again, where everything is under their control, absolutely everything under, under control of human, human governing authorities. And again, everything they would do would be under the guise of, we're doing it for your good, whatever it might be. Maybe it's related to your health. We're only concerned for your health. We're only concerned for your safety. Uh, we're doing it for your good because it's related to national security. We're doing it for your good because of whatever other manufactured threat they might want to put out there. Now, in the era of ever-increasing governmental power, state vying for ever, ever um, more increasing power, trying to grab as much as they can over the individual, over our children, over our children's education, over the church, over life in general in society in this country, we're beginning to see a curtailment of our freedoms. In an ever-growing godless and Christless society, there, where, where the trend has been for some time to remove all Christian convictions and values, the question is, how are we as believers to live in this world? How are we as believers to live life as citizens of two kingdoms? They say that's where, we, that's where we live, right? There's the tension. We live as citizens of the kingdom of God, and we live as citizens of the kingdom of men. How do we live as citizens of two kingdoms? How do we live in a state where there's never increasing bent towards totalitarianism? Where, you're aware of the articles just as well as I am, the news headlines, where parents go to school board meetings and complain about their children being sexualized or the sexualization of their children or the sexual indoctrination of their children. Or, or and or, people who go to places of faith, express their faith in houses of worship, places of public worship, and these kind of people are being increasingly identified and put under surveillance by the state and labeled by many as domestic terrorists, quote-unquote, because their views oppose the state's plans and the purposes for control. How do we live in a, in a society of ever-increasing attacks on our speech, uh, even attacks on our thoughts? What can we think? What can we say? What can we think? What we can't think? What's permissible and what is impermissible according to the state? Again, during the COVID-19 era, our own personal bodily autonomy was being challenged with forced vaccines. Again, all under the guise of the state being concerned about your health. At the same time, the state is concerned about your health and making you take this vaccine that you want, don't want to take. At the same time, the state promotes the murder of somewhere between 800 to a million, perhaps, unborn children every year in this country alone, and it does it under the guise of the health of a mother. We're, beginning, we're being uh, commanded by state government to deny biological reality, uh, increasingly pressured to believe, promote, and even participate in the lies of the world of the imaginary and the delusional where men suddenly become women and women suddenly become men. And we're commanded to accept their alternate reality in total, or if we don't, or if we dare, quote-unquote, misgender somebody, then you can be guilty of a hate crime. And on and on it goes. It's a godless society under a godless government that has increasingly punished those who do good, the righteous, and rewarding those who do evil. 
And again, as many people have throughout history have noted, that once you remove God from government, anything's possible. Once you remove God from government, anything's possible. And again, because we have for so long in this country, as the church in general held to the adage, unless the government asks you to sin, obey everything the government asks you to do, again, the modern church really has no theology of civil disobedience. And again, even that phraseology, civil disobedience, has to shock the ears of some of you in the room, which proves my point. Francis Schaeffer, uh, who died in 1984, once said this, if there's no final place for civil disobedience, then the government has been made autonomous, and such it has been put in the place of the living God. If there's no room to say, no, 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 King's Acts, you can't do that, right? If there's no final place for civil disobedience, then the government has been made autonomous, and as such it has been placed, put in the place of the living God, says Schaefer. G.K. Chesterton, the famous apologist, uh, uh, once said this, made this observation. He says, it is only by believing in God that we can ever criticize the government. Once God is abolished, the government becomes God. And wherever the people do not believe in something beyond the government, they will worship it. They will worship the strongest thing in the world. Right? Where it went, once God is abolished, government becomes God. So how do we as believers live in this culture, in the world, that again, in total, is fastly moving towards, towards tyranny? Where human government is trying to set itself up as the ultimate little g-god, right? God, quote-unquote, demanding everybody uh, uh, comply. They're demanding everybody's allegiance. How, how do we live in that kind of environment? Well, well, the truth is, in an ever-growing atmosphere of totalitarianism, moving towards tyranny, the church of Jesus Christ really has an incredible opportunity, and not only that, but an important role to play, and here it is, just being the church. Just being the church of Jesus Christ. In an an ever-growing, tyrannical world, the church just needs to be the church. We just need to represent him well. He's our sovereign and our Lord. And we represent him well, and we stand up to, and we we stand up and we stand out in this time space continuum that God has placed us in and proclaim him and proclaim the whole counsel of God. We preach the gospel. We gather together for worship because God has commanded. We pray. We, we hold forth the truth. We uphold justice. We confront evil and wickedness and all unrighteousness. And we disregard and we call out government overreach. Calling our government and authorities to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Reminding them that they will too also one day give an account before him. Because Jesus Christ is the ultimate king. Jesus Christ is the ultimate Lord. We just need to be the church. We, we just need to be salt and light in a fallen world. John the Baptist, you remember, I, I referenced him this morning, confronted Herod to his face because of his sin of adultery, stealing his brother's wife and calling her, uh, uh, calling her his own. He just told him the truth. What you're doing is wrong before God. The, one of the Scottish covenants, a man named Andrew Melville, found himself in the jail of uh, the Tower of London for the truth of the gospel. Uh, he, he was jailed because he confronted King James, the, the King James whose name goes with the Bible. And what Melville did is he said this to the king. He said, king, 
There, he said there, there are two kings in uh, two kingdoms in Scotland. There's King James, the head of the Commonwealth, and there's King Jesus, the head of the church, whose subject King James is. And of his kingdom, he is not the head, nor Lord, but only a member. That's what he said. Here's the truth. He was jailed. Right? But, but he's not, he, he, uh, John the Baptist or uh, Melville aren't responsible for outcomes. They're just responsible for what? Being the church. Telling the truth. I, I want to read you, and it's a little bit long, but you'll be okay. I, I think it's helpful. I, I want to read you some excerpts from a book written by Erwin Lutzer. If you've not read anything by Erwin Lutzer, I, I would highly recommend him. It's called When a Nation Forgets God, and I, I don't remember when it was written. It's, it's old, but it's not, it's contemporary. It's written about 10 years ago, I think. Now, when a Nation forgets God, forgets God, Seven Lessons, subtitled Seven Lessons, we, we Must Learn from Nazi Germany. And again, I'd highly recommend you get that book. And you, as I read, you just judge, you just listen with your own ears, and you tell me if you hear anything contemporary that might be, what do they say, history tends to what? Repeat itself, all right? So this is Luther. He said, just before World War II broke out, when Adolf Hitler came to power, he did not discourage people from attending church. And as he was, as he was a baptized Catholic who had long since abandoned his faith. He did not mind, however, if others continued to attend church as long as it did not affect the way they lived or the values they held. In fact, Hitler explicitly said that he would not interfere with the specific doctrines of the church, just as long as the churches were teaching those things that were in harmony with the good German people, and he called this, Hitler called this, positive Christianity, quote-unquote, positive Christianity. And when Hitler got, Luther says, when Hitler got any kind of pushback, he used intimidation because he was the one who controlled the pastor's salaries. And pastors became dependent upon the good graces of the government for their income, which Hitler later referred to them, these pastors, as cowering dogs who do his bidding for the sake of their miserable salaries. Lutzer, from the very beginning, Hitler sought to try to marginalize the church to guarantee that no Christian influence would be allowed to inform government policy. Worship would have to be a private matter between a man and his God. At all costs, the official state policy would have to be based on humanistic principles to give Hitler the freedom to do what was quote-unquote best for Germany. He said the churches must be forbidden from interfering with the temporal matters. The state would have to be scrubbed clean from all Christian convictions and values. Lutzer says the Germans for centuries had celebrated Christmas and Easter, but Hitler reinterpreted their meaning. Christmas was turned into a total pagan festival. The date was changed. School prayers were banned. Carols and nativity plays were forbidden in the schools. In 1938, even the name Christmas was changed to Yuletide. Crucifixes were eliminated from, the classroom, eliminated from the classroom. Easter was turned into a holiday that heralded the arrival of spring. If religion was tolerated, it had to be secularized so it would be compatible with the state's commitment to the greater good of the, revival, of the revived, German, or to a revived Germany. And most of the churches, he said, bowed to the cultural currents and endorsed the quote-unquote positive Christianity that was in line with government policies. Hitler, he said, promised to respect the rights of the churches. He said he wanted to have a quote-unquote peaceful accord between church and state. 
He gave the church a certain freedom as long as they did not do anything subversive to the state. And of course, behind that promise was his own definition of what might be subversive. He used words like tolerance and freedom, assuring that the churches and everyone that uh, what he was doing, again, was, quote-unquote, best for Germany. And of course, what was best would be defined by him and not by the church, not by the Bible, not even by natural law. The Germans, he said, had become accustomed to the doctrine of two spheres, which was interpreted to mean that Christ is Lord of the church, but Kaiser, or Caesar, is, uh, in a manner of speaking, is Lord over the political sphere. And allegiance to this political sphere was high and an honorable duty, as was, one's, uh, allegiance, as was one's allegiance to God. Indeed, allegiance to God was best demonstrated by allegiance to the state. Those who dutifully tolerated excess of the Nazi regime simply continued to study the Bible. As pious Christians thought if they left Hitler alone, then he would leave them alone. But they then discovered that it was not possible. Hitler put pressure on them to have their children indoctrinated in the state schools, and thanks to the cultural pressure, churches were not equipping members to stand against the abuses that were developing around them. Before Hitler moved to destroy the church, he decided to make peace with it and then to use it for his own end. He put on a big show that he was uh, trying to show that he was supportive of the church and then turned around and destroyed it, proclaiming Nazis as the only party in Germany. And every vestige of Christianity would be erased, saying there was not enough room in the churches both for the cross and the swastika. He himself, Hitler, he himself once said, one God must dominate the other. When confronted by two men, named uh, Martin Niemüller and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for his intrusion into the affairs of the church, Hitler said to them, you confine yourself to the church and I'll take care of the German people. To which Niemüller said, you said that I'll take care of the German people, but we too as Christian and churchmen, we have a responsibility towards the German people, and that responsibility was entrusted to us by God, and neither you nor anyone else in this world has the power to take it from us. Upon which, he says, Hitler turned away and walked out of the room without speaking. Later that evening, he says, eight Gestapo men ransacked Neil Miller's rectory, looking for incriminating material, and a few days later, a homemade bomb exploded in the hallway. Interestingly, he says, the police came to the scene even though no one had called the police. He says these threats were easier for Niermüller to, to bear than some of the criticism he received from his colleagues for his strong words to Hitler. Clearly, the majority of the clergy had adopted an attitude of safety first. More than 2,000 pastors who had stood with Niemüller and Bonhoeffer withdrew their support. They believed that appeasement was the best strategy. They thought if they remained silent, they could, be with, uh, uh, they could live with Hitler's intrusion into the church affairs and his political policies. Well, let me tell you what. Uh, you, you can't appease evil, right? And again, government authorities in our country and around the world are moving faster and faster towards tyranny. Now they're, they're, they're telling us, uh, they're telling us, their government, our, our government is telling you the greatest threat to America is uh, systematic racism, which doesn't exist. And the greatest threat to our, to our country is white supremacy, which doesn't exist with any kind of power. 
The greatest threat to our, our, our country is global warm, warming, which certainly doesn't exist because God's in charge of his world, not men. The truth is the greatest threat to America is the government because the government bears the what? The sword. The government bears the sword. Government has all power to punish all opposition, even to take life. And again, the bigger truth, I think, with an ever-growing government tyranny all around us, is the church of Jesus Christ has a great, incredible opportunity and an important role to play to be the church of Jesus Christ. To stand up, stand out, speak the truth, represent Christ. We are not in charge of outcomes. And when we try to manipulate outcomes, when we try to make things work the way we think it needs to work, that's when there's a great desire or a great... Uh, push to appease. Can't we just get along? Answer is you can't get along. You can't appease evil. Nehemiah said to Hitler, you said I'll take care of the German people, but we too as Christians, he says, as churchmen, we have a responsibility towards the people. That responsibility has been entrusted to us by God and neither you nor anyone else in the world has the power to take it from us. And again, we too, we have a responsibility entrusted to us by God towards the people around us. And as a church, again, we have a great responsibility to understand biblical authority and to, uh, to again, be resolved to be the church in this culture. So when human government wants to come and shut us down again in the future, as it did in the past during the COVID-19 era, we just need to stand up and be the church. We need to gather together for worship. We need to pray. We need to hold forth the truth. We need to proclaim the whole counsel of God. We need, we need to preach the gospel. We need to confront evil wickedness and all unrighteousness. And again, disregard and call out government overreach. We do not need the government's permission to be the church. I'm absolutely convinced that, that the church is going to be tested again in the future. But this time, the testing that it's going to come is going to be much more aggressive. It's going to be a greater degree of aggressive a greater aggressive level by the governing authorities. And again, we have to make sure we don't fail the test. We need to stand up. This is standing time, as I said a couple weeks ago. This is not bowing time. You need to resolve in advance to stand. The young men that went to, into Babylon resolved that they were going to honor their God no matter what. They're not in charge of outcomes. We're going to throw you into fire. You do whatever you see, you see fit. We'd prefer that you wouldn't do that. But we're not bowing. The church is called to follow Jesus Christ, not secular government. And again, God is the one who's established authority, and God has set human government up to protect the good and to punish the evil. And again, the greatest threat to this nation and all nations really is government. Human government. Because human government is in the hands of fallen godless men that operates under the authority of the prince of the power of this world, which is Satan himself. So we need to be wise biblically, in this world that lies in the power of the evil one. Now, I've been talking for a long time on this issue. I know, I know. I'm not trying to tire you out, but I just have all these thoughts in my mind that I just, we just have to think this clearly. We've been talking about spheres of authority. And God has a sphere of authority of jurisdiction. God has ordained a sphere of authority of jurisdiction within the home. God has ordained a sphere of authority of jurisdiction within the church, and God has ordained a sphere of authority within the state. 
Now, when you stop and think about those, there's only one of those spheres of authority that existed before the other two, and that's what? Which, which, which sphere of authority began first? Think about it. The family, right? The family's pre-fall, isn't it? Before the fall, everybody was living in a perfect world. Therefore, you didn't have human government. You didn't have the need for human government. Everybody's living in a perfect world. The church, the government authority of the church, or whatever church government authority didn't exist because the, the church hadn't been called into existence. Again, you only need human government, you only need church government in a fallen world. So again, authority that belongs to the family is pre-fall. Therefore, the family is the fundamental building block of our society. That's why the family is under so much pressure, so much attack in this culture. Genesis chapter 1. God creates man, right? And again, we, we know this. It's the kingdom mandate. Genesis 1, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Let him rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over, the, uh, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God is the one who's come and given man these commands, and God is the one who's given to man certain inalienable rights. And the most important here is life. I mean, God came and created man. He gave him life. God gives man life, and life belongs to that man until God takes that life away. And man is to exercise dominion over the earth. He's, he's to rule it. He's to work it. He's to subdue it. Again, all the craziness you hear about the planet is because of, of a godless religious system that has rejected the truth. That, that's where that comes from. Genesis 2.15. Uh, the, the Lord God uh, took the man and put him into the garden of Eden uh, to cultivate it and to keep it. So and, uh, you're here to work. And, and work is, again, this is pre-fall. Work's not part of the curse. It's before the fall. Work is an inalienable right given to men by God. Man was alone. God said it's not good that a man should be alone. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and the Lord took from the side of the, uh, of the man and made a woman. He's, Adam says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Genesis 2, 24, for this cause a man shall live, leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So God created life. God created marriage. God created work, right? God created marriage. God ordained it. God defines it. One man, one woman. Marriage is an institution that belongs to him. He's the one who ordained the family. Right? He commanded the man and the woman to, to be fruitful and multiply. He called them together in the marriage relationship. Again, be fruitful, multiply, have a family. So God recognizes that authority in that original household, and then he recognizes the authority that comes from all the households that come from that uh, original couple, that, from that first marriage relationship into the future. So within that sphere of authority in the home, uh, we see in the New Testament the headship and that relationship belongs to the husband. Ephesians 5.22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, and Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So again, Christ is the head of the church and the husband is the head of the wife and together they are to live out this picture of Christ and his love for the church and, and that relationship together. And within, the severe, within that sphere of authority in the home and the family there, there is authority of the parents over the children. 
Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first command with the promise, that it may be well with you and you might live long on the earth. So again, the family is the most fundamental, foundational sphere of authority in God's creation. It's distinct. It's autonomous. Husband bears the ultimate responsibility in that relationship for directing the affairs of the family. And the children are to subject themselves to the authority of their parents. Which means this. Children do not belong to the state. Children do not belong to the state. Children belong to the parents. They belong to their families. Therefore, every issue that deals with a child, God has given authority to the parents. Again, not to the tyrannical state. As to education, as to medical care, as to every other aspect of a child's life, as to what they are exposed to. Parents have a God-given authority and responsibility to protect their children and a God-given right to exercise dominion over their children, and a right to vehemently disagree and protest and oppose any kind of intentional sexualization or sexual indoctrination or sexual manipulation and promotion of the so-called transgenderism nonsense that is promoted widespread in our culture and widespread in our educational system. Children belong to the parents, and the family is the foundational building block of the culture. And if you destroy the family, then you can destroy the culture. And that's why there's so many attacks on the family. That's why there's so many attacks on, on, on parents, especially male headship. It's intentional. It's a, an intentional directed attack on the family. It is an intentional attempt to destroy the foundations of the culture. Because there's an intentional attempt to destroy parents' ability to pass along instructions for righteousness to the next generation. One of the things I think we forget when, I talk, when we talk about issues like this is we forget that we're engaged in a spiritual battle all around us. We're engaged in a spiritual battle all around us. It's not political. It's spiritual. Now, anytime you have a sphere of authority that's delegated from God, again, all authority originates with Him, that means that sphere of authority is limited. Every sphere of authority is limited. It's governed by the Word of God. So again, God owns everything. The world belongs to Him. All power belongs to Him. He defines and governs every sphere of authority that, again, government, human government, the state, again, has no legitimate right, no legitimate authority to infringe upon the autonomy of the home. To do so would be to usurp the authority that does not belong to them biblically, and at times they need to be reminded of that fact. Now again, while we recognize there's these different spheres of authorities, we recognize also there's a little bit of an overlap within the spheres. Each sphere is distinct, but each has its, uh, because each has its own autonomy, each has its own sovereignty, but there is a, a measure of overlap. I mean, the church overlaps with the home just a bit. Uh, the governing authorities uh, have uh, oversight to punish evil as with, with respect to crime. So both the church and the home, there's a little area of uh, overlap by, by human government. Again, Paul says it's a minister of God uh, to you for your good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger, of who, uh, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. But human government doesn't have the right or the authority to define good and evil. 
good and evil are defined by God and his word. Now, let me back up just a, just a moment here, uh, because I think we need, to have an, uh, we need to have a better understanding of the origin of government. We've got the authority at home, but where did, where did government come in? If we're going to understand how it works, where, where, where was the origin? Now, again, I, I just said it. When God created everything, everything was what? Perfect. No sin, no rebellion. God creates a perfect world, provides everything everybody needs in the world. And those who inhabited his world, God has provided for them, and he gives them uh, life. He gives them marriage. He gives them a family. He gives them food. He gives them weather. Eventually, in Genesis chapter 10, he'll give them nations. There'll be lots of people. And when God rested on the seventh day, there were people, there were animals, but there was no government. And then sin entered into the world. But when sin entered in the world of the fall, Genesis chapter 3, government did not. Cain murders Abel in Genesis chapter 4, and God himself becomes the legal system, if you will, meted out, uh, to mete out judgment against him. In fact, for the first eight chapters of the book of Genesis, in this relatively sparsely populated uh, world, uh, it operates without any kind of human government or nations. Now, of course, in the absence of uh, earthly authority, sin flourishes. No laws, no law enforcement, evil peripherates uh, 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 on the earth everywhere, making the planet basically unlivable. Moses described it like this, Genesis 6 and 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence, and God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come to me, uh, come before me, and the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. So again, evil and violence is so great, God decides he's going to destroy the whole thing by flood. God responds to this, to this violence uh, again uh, on this earth by get, indeed flooding the earth, Genesis uh, 7, 20 to 24. And then he's going to resettle human society. All flesh is destroyed. I mean, the Lord's blot, blots out every kind of living thing that's upon the face of the land, man to animals, creeping things, birds of the sky, etc. All blotted out from the earth except... Noah and his family who take refuge in the ark, they're the only ones that survive. Now, when the flood waters recede, there's a new beginning. And with that new beginning comes government, the new institution of government. Again, to keep the world from falling back into its pre-flood condition. So God establishes government to protect society by shielding it from violence and restraining evil. Now, the flood may have wiped out all the life on the planet, but the flood didn't wipe out what? Sin, right? Noah and his family, they emerged from the earth to begin to repopulate the earth. But every human being that was born was still born with a sin nature, just like before the flood. Nonetheless, God promised that he would never again destroy the earth by flood. That's Genesis 9-11. God enters into a covenant with Noah and his family to provide for them. And he enters into a covenant with them not only to provide for them, but provide for them a mechanism to curb evil, a structure to curb evil, to promote human flourishing. He also gives them a sign of the pledge of not to destroy the earth again by way of a deluge and remind humanity of its constant need of repentance and does that through the rainbow. And by the way, on a side note, make sure you realize it is no accident in the day in which we live of the mocking attempt, uh, uh, attempt to mock God by uh, the lawless, godless, LGBTQYXYZ, whatever lobby, in its use of the rainbow in its flag. It's an intentional mocking of God. But the reality is they're just storing wrath up for themselves in the day of judgment. 
Now, again, ultimately, behind this whole discussion here at the moment, the whole discussion of government, we have to understand there's a spiritual battle going on behind the scenes everywhere. So in this new post-flood world that come out of the ark, God sets up a structure. And human government, and again, human government is set up to promote good and restrain evil. So Noah comes out with his family out of the ark. God reestablishes the human race. A new mandate, he gives a mandate very similar to the one he'd given Adam and Eve back in chapter Genesis chapter 1 we just read. And there's a new charge, again, in this post-flood world, and it, and it contains, uh, contains a series of blessings, really four blessings, the protection of four blessings that uh, become the main function of human government that is being established. So, so turn to Genesis 8, and we'll just work through a couple of these here. Genesis 8, verse 20. The first post-flood blessing that has been given to mankind is freedom of worship. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and said, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered them burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the, the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from its youth, from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So the fo first, fo first post-flood blessing that God gives mankind is the freedom to worship. God doesn't command him to worship. He just worships. He wants to worship. He, he, he wants to honor God. He's thankful. I mean, God has brought him and his family uh, through the flood. And, and so he builds an altar and he worships. Worships freely. And he and his family uh, ha have this freedom that God has uh, ordained for them to have uh, to worship according to his conscience. The second post-flood blessing was a family. Again, after God received Noah's sacrifice, he re reiterates to man and to Noah his duty. Right? Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? It, it, it's a, the blessing of a family. The blessing of marriage. The blessing of children. They're all God-ordained rights. God designed all of these to be a blessing to mankind, for mankind's joy. Heard it this weekend, uh, and you hear it every time we do a wedding, right? Uh, Peter says marriage is the grace of life. Uh, Solomon says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. So the blessing and joys of family are mandated from God to man. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The third post-flood blessing, a uh, post-flood provision that God makes for mankind is food. Now, obviously, there was food in the world before the flood. I got that. Before the fall. But before the fall, man and animals lived in a harmonious relationship. Animals came to men and interacted with them in some kind of a peaceable uh, fashion. But after the flood, fear of mankind falls on animals. 
Because they're going to become part of the human food chain, if you will. Verse 2. Genesis 19. The fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish, all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave you the green plant. So again, so far in this post-flood world, there's blessings that come to men from God and that he has given to mankind. He's given them life. He's given freedom to worship. He's given them a family to, to enjoy, uh, food to eat. And again, I just said it, but the last one, again, that has to be protected, must be protected as the gift of life. Verse 5. I will surely require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, and from every man and from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Verse 6, whoever shed man's, sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for he is in the image, for in the image of God he made him man. That, that's the beginning of human government. This is not an individual taking vengeance on somebody. Uh, this is not murder. This is not, a, again, a human uh, personal vengeance upon another person who's harmed you. This is an acknowledgement. There's a delegated authority empowered by God to carry out God's command to bear the sword for the purpose of per putting to death evildoers. So here in this post-flood, still wicked world, right, God ordains government in this fallen wicked world as he, as the government is to be a representative of him, a minister of him, a his avenger to bear the sword against evil, to bear, the, to, to, to bear God's wrath. Because man has dignity. He's been made in the image of God. God is the author of life. Uh, he has given the greatest gift any man or woman could ever have, and that's life. As the author of life, he's the one who gives it, and he's the one who alone has the right to take it away. And when a man passes beyond the border that belongs exclusively to God alone and takes the life of another man, then he forfeits his own life without pity, without partiality, without delay. Whoever sheds a man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, because he made him in the image of God. So again, God has, has ordained capital punishment to maintain and emphasize the sanctity of human life, to vindicate and to declare his lordship, God's lordship over everything, including life. Protect the innocent, punish the evil. That's the role of government. So again, the power and the authority of the command to exercise capital punishment, again, is not given to God or from God to the individual. It's given to government, state that represents him. That's Romans 13, 4. For it is a minister of God for your good. It does, uh, but, but if you do what is evil, be afraid for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. So again, God gives in this post-flood world four a fourfold series of blessings to make life in, in, in the world enjoyable and functional. And the blessings are, again, the right to worship, the right to family, the right to food, the right to life. And as I told you last time, these are uh, uh, inalienable rights. You can do, do a search on inalienable versus unalienable, and it'll be a great word study for you, okay? There's a slight difference, but it's pretty much the same. And what all men need in a fallen world is they need government to protect those inalienable rights. And government has a function 
a fundamental God-given responsibility and authority, again, given to it by God to promote good and put down evil. Protect these God-given and alienable rights. The right to worship, the right to work, the right to exercise dominion over the earth, the right to have life, to enjoy life, the right uh, to enjoy that life that he's given to us, the right to have a family, the right to enjoy your family, the right to have children, the right to, ha- to enjoy your kids, to, to, to rule them, to provide for them, the right to make uh, provision for your family through work. So government has the responsibility to protect freedom of worship, to protect the family, protect the food supply or the food chain, if you will, and protect life. These are, again, all God-given inalienable rights. Human government does not grant them to us. They belong to us through God's ordained authority. And beyond this, government has no biblical authority. Beyond this, government has no biblical authority. The state has no biblical authority to command you to wear a yellow T-shirt on Tuesdays. The state has no biblical authority to command you to drive a white car versus a black one or a red one. There are limits biblically on the authority that God has given to the state. And again, primarily human government exists as it's ordained by God to protect our rights, to protect our rights that God has given to us, promote the good, restrain evil. And if it fails at that, it loses its biblical authority. And again, our rights are given to us by our Creator, not by government. Boy, that's important to understand. Our rights are given to us by God, not by our government. We have inalienable rights, not just because the Constitution says that, but we have inalienable rights because we're made in the image of God. And God has given them to us. And God has again designated government or designed government to protect those rights that He Himself has extended. Listen to uh, Jesse Johnson. He's a pastor over in Virginia in his book called The City of Man, Kingdom of God. He says, when you believe that government, when you believe that it is government that bestows you your rights, you look to the government instead of God as having the final say about the purpose and parameters of your existence. You trust in the government for protection, for provision, for prosperity. You look to the government for your paycheck, health care, and education. The government becomes a warehouse for your rights. And government programs become the pipeline of your wealth and identity. And if you believe that, you will be using your life to advocate for all kinds of solutions God did not design government to be capable of producing. God set boundaries on government. Again, boundaries are designed by him or designated by him, defined by him by the scripture. And when government goes outside the bounds of the God ordained or God's ordained role, it really needs to be called back into account. When government is unjust, when, when government allows its citizens to be enslaved or discriminated against or starved or robbed, when government starts to encroach upon uh, a family's autonomy, They need to be called back to account. And God is going to hold these men and women behind these unjust governments to account for failing to protect his God-given rights and freedoms. And again, when men remove God from government, chaos ensues. And when you remove God from government, anything's possible. 
Hitler said, you confine yourself to the church and I'll take care of the German people. Again, the greatest threat to this country or any country in the world really is government. God is the one that bestows inalienable rights amongst men. He charges human government with one task, protect them. Protect the God-given rights that he has given to mankind. And again, when the government fails to protect human rights that God has given to each man, his inalienable rights, government becomes a fountain of harm. Listen to this. It's from 2016 Psychology Today article penned by a guy named David Noyce. The title of the article is The Danger of Claiming Your Rights Come from God. And you're going to argue again that our rights don't come from God, but they come from government. He says it's nice to have a philosophical basis for a view that a government can't deny your God-given rights. Unfortunately, however, the entire argument falls apart under scrutiny. In fact, it can be more accurately uh, be understood as dis- a disingenuous attempt to promote religion while doing nothing to explain or secure anyone's rights. First, he says, let's consider the claim that our rights come from God. Since even believers will acknowledge the very existence of God cannot be proven, this claim leaves us in a most unsettling position. Well, I won't, I won't go there, but <laughs> he's just making a straw man, right? Our most precious rights are apparently flowing from an entity whose existence cannot reasonably be doubted. Even believers acknowledge that, as uh, opposed, uh, even believers acknowledge that opposed to the verifiable evidence as the basis of their faith. He goes, that's uh, fine for one's personal religious outlook, but why would we feel that cherished human rights and civil rights are more secure if they arise from a source that may not even exist? You Christians want to believe in God, that's fine, but we know, we know who you know that God doesn't exist, you can't prove it, so we're just all playing a game here. So obviously here's a, here's a man who doesn't believe that God exists, and here's a man who doesn't believe that, that we have inalienable rights from God himself. He believes that government grants human rights. Government uh, procures and advances human rights. Therefore, your rights are only secure as your government is. Your rights exist only to the extent that the government desires for you to have them. If government fails to grant you your rights, then you're what? Out of luck. That there's no rational or spiritual basis to object. You're just out of luck. And what you end up with ultimately is tyranny, right? Totalitarianism leads to tyranny. Human government becomes the ultimate authority. And the state then demands that you worship the state as what? God. Again, remember Chesterton. It is only by believing in God that we can ever criticize the government. Once God is abolished, then government becomes God. Wherever people do not believe in something beyond the government, they will worship it. They'll worship the strongest thing in the world. So authority belongs to God, not the state. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist are established by God. And all men are going to be held accountable to that reality, even earthly rulers, even kings, even presidents, even premiers. God has given a sphere of authority in the home. God has given a sphere of authority in the church. And there's a sphere of authority that God has given to human government that exists because sin exists in a fallen world. 
And human government has one biblical responsibility, protect God-given rights. Protect God-given rights, promote the good, and punish the evil. And God has given a sphere of authority to the church that is carried out through his word under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> carried out by godly men, elders, pastors, shepherds, whom God has called to rule and exercise authority over God's people. And again, that authority relates only as far as it relates to the word of God. So again, in the sphere of the authority of the church, authority belongs to Christ. He delegates that authority, again, to pastors, elders, in that congregation, not to the state. Authority in the world is not <clears throat> autonomous, meaning that people don't have to answer, right? Authorities, all, del all authorities delegated wherever it's at in the world. So again, state government has no legitimate authority in the realm of the church. And at times, again, it needs to be reminded of that. It has no biblical authority in the home. It needs to be reminded of that. Have you noticed that government is trying to sexualize your kids? Trying to promote transgenderism? Trying to hide whatever kind of difficulty your kid might have from you at school? And trying to force this ideology on them that is just ludicrous? It's, it's unbiblical. It's evil. Have you noticed that <clears throat> everything <clears throat> in the culture is run by fear? Aren't you afraid of the North Pole melting and those little polar bears having nowhere to go? And then maybe perhaps showing up in your backyard with your Subaru or whatever it was in that commercial? Right? I don't want those polar bears in my backyard. That's fear. Authority is not autonomous. God owns authority. God has delegated authority. State has no legitimate authority except where God has given it legitimate authority. So again, the way for us to fight the coming tyranny, the totalitarianism that is approaching everywhere, is just stand up and be the church. 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul to Timothy, in case I'm delayed, I write to you, that you know may how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That's who we are. We just uphold the truth. We're the pillar in support of the truth. We're salt and light in a decaying dark world. We're Christ's representatives. We represent him well in his, his kingdom interests. And guess what? There's one ultimate king, and that's King Jesus, not the state. And there are times when we have a duty and a responsibility to remind the state of that fact call government back to its biblical duties. Because again, when the state fails to promote good and promote and protect from evil, they failed in their God-given authority. When they reward evildoers and punish the righteous, government has forfeited its divine purpose. And again, for all those who serve as human authorities, they're going to face God's coming judgment. The crime wave epidemic the homelessness, the sexual perversions of all kinds in this country, homosexual, transgenderism, all, all the malignant uh, expressions of human misery and depravity that all originate from the fallen human heart. But when corrupt public policies driven by corrupt public leaders 
whose moral decisions have been perpetuated against God and against the people of our country, when there's increasing evil and the subjecting of the good, they need to be held to account. They need to know they're going to be punished. So for the common good of both believers and unbelievers, we who are upholders of the truth, we just must speak the truth. We must remind corrupt human leaders of their eternal peril. Romans 14, 12, each one of us will give an account to himself, to God. The Bible says it's appointed a man wants to die, then comes what? Judgment. So again, for the unrighteous, they're going to stand in the presence of God who created them, and he's going to demand that they give an account for how they have misused the authority that he has granted to them in their governing. And unless they repent and cry out for mercy from God through Christ, they're going to be punished. They'll perish for their sin. And the Bible says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We just need to speak the truth. Herod, it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. You're sinning against God. We just need to be the church. We need to inform <clears throat> human government authority they have an ordained sphere that they need to stay in. We need to remind human rulers they have a delegated uh, authority that, again, they're going to be held accountable for before God, a limited authority, a well-defined, purposeful authority. And again, we've we got to think deeply on these issues as believers. When is it right to disobey governing authorities? Is it okay to practice civil disobedience? Again, I told you just a little while ago, I mean, even for that term, in some of your minds, I know it's, a, it's like, oh, no, we can't do that. I said previously, <clears throat> biblically, you have the right to disobey governing authorities when government commands you to do what God forbids, when government forbids you to do what God commands, and when government commands what's not theirs to command. There are limits on government's authority. And again, in that Romans 13 passage, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So again, we acknowledge that all authority comes from God. It's delegated to men. And we display a hard attitude of subjection to authority because we acknowledge the sovereignty of God. However, that does not mean that we should not stand up against ungodliness and unrighteousness in this culture. Because, again, a, a greater purpose uh, for, for us is we're ambassadors of Christ. We represent Him. Again, we need to preach the gospel. We need to warn of the consequences uh, of rebellion for all men. And again, in that Romans 13 passage, every person is subject to authority. Even earthly rulers, even governing authorities. They too are subject to the laws of the land. They too are subject themselves to the transcendent, personal God of the universe and his law. James Coach, you might remember him, who was incarcerated for defying the government authorities of Canada with the COVID-13 lockdowns. Referring to Romans 13.1, he says, <clears throat> he says this, this does not give government total authority. It's not granting to government total authority, whereby government has authority over every other sphere of authority. Excuse me. It's not giving them authority over the home. It's not giving them authority over the church. Specifically, he says, it's addressing each of us individually as citizens in our civic duty to government. It's not addressing the corporate entity of the church. It's not giving authority to government to 
uh, dictate the terms of worship in the church. It's not giving government the authority to restrict preaching of the church, to govern the content of the songs that we sing. It doesn't give government authority over that at all. It just simply addresses each of us as individuals and our civic duty and responsibilities in relationship to government. Again, that's that let every person part. Let every person, everybody in the world, being subject to the governing authorities because there's no authority except from God. God's the ultimate authority. So again, human authorities need to be held accountable for the law because they're going to be held accountable before God. Remember in Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul, uh, the same one who writes this letter here in the book of Romans, uh, he, he, was, uh, uh, he and Silas were in Philippi. Remember they'd been publicly beaten, jailed uh, without a trial? And the magistrates decide they're going to let him go, right? T- turn there and look. Uh, Acts 16. And verse 37. Acts 16, 37. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans, they've thrown us into prison, and now they're sending us away secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and bring us up. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them when they brought them out by begging them to leave the city. Paul's holding these magistrates accountable. You can't just break the law. You're, you're under subjection to authorities like I am. I mean, they jailed these men, Paul and Silas. They beat them. Shouldn't have done that. They're Roman citizens. Now, of course, the civil authorities, they want these guys to leave town quietly, but they won't go. Can you imagine being let out of jail and saying, no, we're not leaving. Bring the other guys down here. Bring the magistrates. We're going to talk to them. So again, Paul makes the chief magistrates come down to the, to the jail. And they kept begging them to leave, but they wouldn't do it. Verse 40. They went out of prison and entered the house of Lydia. We're not leaving town. We're just going to go over and visit somebody for a while. When they saw the brethren, then they encouraged them, then they departed. Government's not above law. Look over to Acts 22. Paul's in Jerusalem. He's been preaching the gospel to the Jews. A riot breaks out. And again, basically, they want him dead, right? Uh, Acts 22, verse 24. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating stating that he should be examined by scourging. So they find out what the reason was why they were shouting against him that way. So when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who was a Roman and uncondemned. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came to him and said, tell me, are you Roman? He said, yes. The commander answered with some small talk. I acquired my Roman citizenship with a large sum of money. Well, Paul says, look, I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who are about to examine him immediately let go of him, and the commander also was what? Afraid when he found out 
that he was a Roman because he'd put him into chains. Paul knew that these governing authorities were not above being held accountable. And they were accountable. They're not above the law. All governing authorities are subject to the law just like everybody else is. And he held them accountable. And all governing authorities are accountable for their lawlessness. All governing authorities themselves, again, are subject to the rule of God. All governing authorities are accountable before the Most High, who is the source of their delegated authority. Now, again, as totalitarianism, tyranny has grown around us. Church just needs to be the church. We need to stand for godliness and righteousness. We need to oppose all wickedness and evil. We need to speak the truth. We need to meet. We need to worship. We need to take care of our kids. We don't need the permission of the state to be the church. And when government attempts to usurp its authority, other than what, what is in its God-ordained sphere, we have to stand in opposition to it. And I just said it, because I'm thinking about kids. A relationship to your kids. As the head of the home fathers, you're to protect your children. So when the state attempts to overreach into the sphere of our homes, usurping the authority that we have over our children, you have a God-given responsibility to protect your children. You have a God-given responsibility and obligation to resist, to stand in opposition to the government, to call government to account because they're out of line. Likewise, when human government tries to make its way back into the church to dictate our worship, as it has done in the past and most certainly I think will do in the future, we have to stand in opposition to it. We have to inform them they're outside of their God-ordained duty and authority. As you remember during that time, one church famously reminded us all, Christ, not Caesar, is the head of the church. Christ, not Caesar, is the head of the church. And so while God has invested divine authority and civil government to rule the state, God does not grant civic rulers jurisdiction over the church. Civil government doesn't have authority over our doctrine, our practice, our polity. Therefore, getting any involvement, any kind of orders regulating our worship or attendance, prohibitions against gathering, etc., and so forth in the future. They've just stepped outside their legitimate bounds that God has ordained for them. And here's my answer. We will not comply. It's pastors, elders. God has given the rule to. And as pastors and elders and even God's people, we can't hand over to earthly authority what belongs to Christ. He's invested us as pastors and elders with a delegated authority to represent him. We all, have, as Christians, have a delegated authority to represent him as his ambassadors in a fallen world. He's the head of the church. The church. Ecclesiastical matters belong to him. That's his kingdom, not Caesar's. And Jesus drew a very distinct dividing line between the two kingdoms. He said in Mark chapter 12, verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Therefore, we should follow in his footsteps. Free from any kind of external authority or control, we have the right to self-government 
and freedom from any interference from the secular humanistic authorities. Again, we don't need as the church, we don't need the state's permission to be the church. Civil authority, again, has one responsibility before God, promote good, restrain evil, protect God-given inalienable rights of all men, the right to worship, the right to family, the right to work, the right to eat, the right to life. Governing authorities function in this world as a servant of God, it will be held accountable to him. And on an individual level, every human ruler are going to be accountable to him. Now, as believers, <clears throat> we have to understand that conflict between the church and the state is inevitable. Conflict between the church and the state is inevitable. We can't hide from it. We can't hide from it, and we can't ignore what's going on around us. And we can't just try to appease earthly rulers and just pretend everything's going to be okay. Because it isn't. It never has been and never will be. Because in a fallen world, human rulers are also what? Fallen. In a fallen world, uh, human rulers are also fallen. And again, I think, again, what we fail to realize is the problem in this country is not political. The problem in this country is spiritual. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are God and the whole world, what? Lies in the power of the evil one. We know that we're from God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's a spiritual issue. And it's very hard for evil men who are part of this evil system to hold back evil. It's very hard for evil men who are part of this evil system to hold back evil. Human rulers who are evil themselves are incapable of being without evil. That's why the Bible says things are going to get worse and worse. That's why evil men are going to grow more and more evil, more and more corrupt. It's Satan who, again, is the, the little g-god of this world. Uh, he's its ruler. He, he's the liar. He's the father of liars. He's a murderer. Uh, he's a slanderer. He's a deceiver. He's the one who seeks to kill and destroy. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Conflict between the state and the church is inevitable. And Satan is going to continue to energize this godless system, the state, human government, that stands against God and against God and his righteousness, and is going to energize this state system to stand against God's people. We cannot hide. We cannot appease. We cannot just get along. We just need to be the church. We just need to be the church in a dark world. Nehemiah, responding to the time, again, God's purpose and the trial that the German church was going through, and they were facing at this time, he said this. Again, this is a Nehemiah. We have all of us, the whole church and the world community, we have been thrown into the tempter's sieve, and he is shaking, and the wind is blowing. It must now become manifest whether we are wheat or chaff. Verily, a time of sifting has come upon us, and even the most indolent and peaceful person among us must see the calm of meditative Christianity has come to an end. Now springtime for the hopeful and the expectant Christian church. It's testing time. God is giving Satan free hand so he may shake us up so that it may be seen what matter of men we are. Satan swings his sieve and Christians or Christianity is thrown hither and thither. And he who is not ready to suffer he who has called himself a Christian only because he thereby hoped to gain something good from, uh, for his race in his, uh, 
nation is blown away like chaff by the wind of time. So look, difficult times are coming. For Nehemiah, he said, look, difficult times are here. If you've only identified with Christianity just for some kind of personal good you think you might gain from it, this is not a time to do that. This is a time to stand. Stand for Christ no matter what. Almost every single week on the front bulletin, I've asked to have put on nothing else matters but the glory of God, and I've asked to have that put on intentionally because I love you as a congregation, and I'm concerned about the direction. The uh, uh, I mean, I'm not omnipotent. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have any divine foreknowledge, but I am concerned that we must make sure we understand this issue properly now, presently, while there's a moment of calm before the fire comes. Once you're in Babylon, it's not the time to figure out if you're going to serve God or not. You make that decision in advance. The glory of God is all that matters. I'm not in charge of outcome. Let me tell you, Herod, you are out of line. You're sinning against God. It's just that simple. So again, dark clouds and tyranny and men are doing what men do because men are sinful and the whole world lies in the power of the evil. And just be the church. Let the church be the church. Stand up for Christ. Let the light shine in the darkness. Right? Because isn't that where the light shines the brightest? It shines brightest in the darkness. Well, it's pretty dark out there. Well, just be a light someplace. Stand for truth. Oppose ungodliness, unrighteousness. Proclaim the hope and the glory of the gospel of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luther says this. He says, yes, God is separating the wheat from the chaff. He says, this is no time to bout, but to accept our, uh, no, no time to pout, but to accept our role as Christians in this society with joy. He says, yes, we have challenges and our liberties, and we have, uh, but we have authority, we have opportunities but to, to prove our love for Christ in the gospel. He said Bonhoeffer was right when he said that we'll never see the victorious church until we see that suffering is a divine gift. 1 Peter 1.29, for you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe but to suffer for his namesake. He said God sends persecution both to purify and to sharpen the church for its witness. As the days grow darker, we just need to shine brighter. We just need to focus on Christ. Our love for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ should compel us in everything we do. Because again, it's, the Christ, it's, it's Christ standing there like this morning I said, Here, here's the wounds. Here's how much I love you. Here's how much I have a power and authority over everything. You're my witnesses. We're slaves of Christ, right? We've been bought with a price. We're not our own. Just be faithful. All right? Our Father and our God, we're thankful for our time in your word and thankful again for this study in Romans and I pray that it's helpful, just some of the things I've been thinking about. Some of the opportunities I do believe we really have in a dark world when everything is kind of collapsing, but you're firm. You're that strong foundation. We sang about that this morning. Read it out of the book of Psalms. You're our solid rock. And we're thankful for that. We just want you to be honored. Help us to honor you in all that we do. Help us to think clearly and deeply uh, upon these truths. And we love you. And thank you for a great day of worship. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.